series in the Gospel of Mark. And by the way, my name is Paul Buckley. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're a guest, we're glad you're here. We pray God's blessing on you. The greatest thing we can offer you is actually God himself. It's amazing. Uh, it's not because we're anybody special. Matter of fact, we're not. Um, we are unworthy of God. But he's gracious and he loves and he does dwell among his people. So the greatest thing we can give you is the gift of his presence. We pray that you experience that today. Part of how we experience his presence is, presence is hearing his word. And we are in this Gospel of Mark. The title of the series is Amazed. Uh, we're learning about Jesus and we're being amazed by Jesus. And we're hearing his call to follow him. And now we're in chapter 8, moving on into chapter 9. This is a section in the Gospel of Mark where uh, it goes on for a number of chapters where uh, it talks about what it is to be a follower of Christ. It talks more about what it is to be a disciple. So we're going to see as we go through this, there's much to learn. Um, So what I want to do is I want to read it and then go from there. And I want to pray that even as I read it, God would speak to us. God loves uh, and uses the reading of his word, the public reading of scripture. So let's pray and then we'll dig in to this section of scripture. And the title of the message is A Cruciform life. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your living word. We thank you, Lord, that you speak to us through your word. Will you visit us in your word? And we ask you now, Lord, to do just that, that we would hear your voice. And Lord, I want to serve you well, and I want to serve these precious people well. So I ask you to give me strength, grace, power, and I pray the result would be that I fade in the background and that we hear your voice And your voice comes and creates life, Lord. There'd be new life here this morning, Lord. People would come to know you for the first time. And those who have known you for a long time would be refreshed in this amazing eternal life you give us. All for your glory, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Please look with me at Mark chapter 8, verse 27. We'll read through chapter 9, verse 1. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. He called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. He said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. God's word, Mark chapter 8. Is this mic working? Fine. I can go to acoustic or a mic. Sorry. How's that? Is that working? We 
We will continue, and we will go on whether the mic works or not. Um, this is a wonderful passage of Scripture. Um, it teaches us many things, and I want to dive into it. Are we working? I'm hearing it, I'm hearing it back and forth. So I'm going to put this aside. Those of you who know me know this is going to be really hard for me to stay still um, and, and not move around. Yeah, we'll see. We'll figure this out. Um, you know, sometimes we get things terribly wrong. Uh, we, we can sign up for something and find out that, you know, it isn't what we expected. Um, and and uh, we, we actually sat through a timeshare recently. They told us 90 minutes, and it wasn't what we expected. It was three hours. <laughs> Um, and there can be things like that. There's a story uh, from Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress is a wonderful book. Actually, used to be the second most popular book in English. It's an allegory of the Christian life written by John Bunyan. And in the story, there's this character, Pliable. And Pliable signs up for something, and it, it doesn't turn out to be what he expects. I think we have a picture of Pliable to show, um, if that works. And just let me give you some of the dialogue, though, that goes on in the story. Christian has told Pliable about heaven, about the celestial city. And Pliable is really interested. And this is how the dialogue goes. It says, uh, Pliable says, well said, what things are, there, are they? And Christian says, there is an endless kingdom to be inhabited, an everlasting life to be given us, that we may inhabit that kingdom forever. Well said, and what else? There are crowns and glory to be given us and garments that will make us shine like the sun in the firmaments of heaven. This is very pleasant. And what else? There shall be no more crying nor sorrow for he that is owner of the place will wipe all tears from our eyes. And what company shall we have there? Asked Pliable. There, there we shall be with seraphims and cherubims, creatures that will dazzle your eyes to look on them. There also you shall meet with thousands and ten thousands that have gone before us to that place. None of them are hurtful, but loving and holy. Everyone walking in the sight of God and standing in his presence with acceptance forever. There we shall see the elders with their golden crowns. There we, we will see the holy virgins with their golden harps. We will see men that by the, by the world were cut in pieces, hurt, burnt in flames, eaten of beasts, drowned in seas, for the love that they bear to the Lord all well and clothed with immortality as with a garment. Pliable says that the hearing of this is enough to ravish one's heart. So Pliable's all excited. He's hearing Christian talk about heaven and the glories and all that will be there. And then it goes on. Bunyan says, Now I saw in my dream that just as they had ended this talk, they drew near to a very miry slaw. Um, not coleslaw. Uh, slaw was a word for a bog or, or uh, marsh. Uh, they drew near to a very miry slaw. There was in the midst of the plain, and, and they, being heedless, did both fall into the bog. The name of the slaw was Despond, and here, therefore, they welled for a time, being grievously bedaubed with the dirt. I love the old English. And Christian, because of the burden that was on his back, began to sink in the mire. Then said Pliable, Ah, neighbor Christian, where are you? Truly, said Christian, I do not know. At this, Pliable began to be offended and angrily said to his fellow, Is this the happiness you have told me of all this while? If we have such ill speed at our first setting out, what may we expect betwixt this and our journey's end? May I get out again with my life? You shall possess this brave country alone for me. And with that, he gave a desperate struggle or two, got out of the mire on the side of the slaw nearest to his home, and so away he went, and Christian never saw him again. The story in Pilgrim's Progress uh, of Pliable is a story of someone who signed up for things, expecting one thing, and finding there was more to the story. This passage today is a part of the story that's given to us. It's given to all the pliables in all of us, 
that we might know that there is more to the story. As we've been going through this wonderful gospel, we've been beholding Jesus and all of who he is. He's been healing the sick. He's been driving out demons. He's been raising the dead. He's been speaking wonderful words of truth. And if we weren't careful, we might think, well, that's what it's all about. Jesus healing and making me better right now in every way. And I like this Jesus. But there's more to the story. There's more to tell. There's more about following Jesus than maybe what we would expect. And we can be like pliable, all excited for the good things, not realizing there's a little more to understand. We can think that being a Christian is really about having the best life you can right now. That's what it's about getting what I want, feeling good about myself, and, and, and then walking in faith. I, I watched a man on TV, a, a preacher recently, who was saying that basically we just need to encounter our life with faith and not fear, and God will meet our needs. And that's true, but that's not the whole story. God is faithful. He does bless. He does give. But there's more to the story. There's more to the reality. There's truth And Jesus comes against this idea strongly, clearly, and firmly that the Christian life is a life without any cost. That it's a life that's just the good life, your best life now. He comes against that strongly and clearly. He rebukes Peter for that mindset. And he calls him even Satan and says, you have in mind the things of men, not God. This is not God's way, Peter. There's more to the story. So what I want to do is I want to just kind of walk through this section of Scripture, and I want to learn about the Christian life. I want, to learn, uh, I want us to learn about the Christian life. I want us to reflect and to see that the Christian life really is a cruciform life. It's in the form of a cross. There's a cross to bear in the Christian life. Now, there's much good about this on the other side and through this, but it is inescapably a cruciform life. So I want to go through the passage and just walk through it, and I think we're going to see three things. I want to talk about the surprise of the cruciform life. I want to talk about the call of the cruciform life. And then I want to talk about the reasons for the cruciform life. And if uh, a sound person could come and maybe grab my mic and see, check the batteries if, and see if it works, because um, if I can get work and then I can move around, I feel kind of like I'm stuck here at the mic, so... So let's, let's continue uh, working through these truths. First, the surprise of the cruciform life. Jesus has gone with his disciples. They have journeyed uh, to Caesarea Philippi, so they've gone to the north. They've gone up near the, the base of Mount Hermon, the source of the Jordan River, probably some sort of retreat to take them away from the crowds. And he's interacting with them. Uh, he's talking with them, and he asks them this question, who do people say that I am? And there's all sorts of ideas out there about who he is. People don't really get it. And that's one of the themes in the Gospel of Mark. People don't get who Jesus is. And so there's ideas. He's John the Baptist. Even though John the Baptist had just fairly recently died and been beheaded, um, they, there's people who are saying, well, you know, this miracle worker is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Or maybe he's Elijah. There was a promise that Elijah would come back before the, ret- the end of things, uh, before the coming of the kingdom. So maybe this is Elijah come back. Or one of the prophets. There's all sorts of ideas. And Jesus isn't just interested in what people think in general about him. He wants to know what his disciples think. So he turns the question to them. Who do you say that I am? And in a moment of, of profound brilliance, really, um, and a real advancement in their understanding of who Jesus is, Peter Proclaims and really, uh, if, if you read the other accounts of this, he does it on the behalf of the whole disciples, all of them. He and, and under the inspiration of God, he says, "You are the Christ. You are the Christ. You are the Anointed One." And and the word Christ is means anointed. It's similar to our word for christened, anointed. And the reason uh, that that word is used uh, for Christ is because he's the king. And what they would do in those days is when there was a king, they would anoint him with oil. They would set him apart as the chosen king. And, And when he says, you are the Christ, he means he's not just a Christ, a king, 
but he is the Christ. Good. Okay. Thanks for your patience, everybody. doesn't work, just say, doesn't work, I'll go back to the mic. This allows me to move. How's that sound? Better? Good. So, he proclaims that you are the Christ, uh, understanding that Jesus is the king, the ultimate king, the king of kings, the promised one. They were waiting for this Christ who would come and bring the kingdom of God, who would, who would come and usher in God's justice and righteousness and goodness. And so this is really profound for Peter to recognize that Jesus is not just a prophet. Uh, they had categories for a prophet, but now they come to recognize that he's more, that he's the king. And then Jesus goes on from there to begin to explain more about who he is. So they get that. They get that he's the Christ. But Jesus wants them to understand there's more to the story than what they may think. It's not necessarily a king on their terms. It's a king on his terms. And that's why he forbids them to say anything. So Peter says this and then he says, don't tell anybody. Because he's a king on God's terms, not their terms. And if, they, if everybody heard about it and the news started getting out about who he was they would make him a king on their terms instead of God's terms. And for the sake of his disciples, he begins to teach about what it is, what it means for him to be the king. It says he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So he starts to teach that there is more to the story. That it isn't perhaps the king that they expect. It's interesting there in verse 31, if you see that, he, he calls himself the son of man. The son of man. Do you see that? He began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things. This was a, a term used just for men in general, but in special ways in scripture at times, for the king, for the Christ. And there's a verse that they would have probably known well in Daniel chapter 7, if we can project that. And this is a verse about the Son of Man, what he will be doing. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this son of man is one who's going to come as a king and all the peoples are going to serve him and bow before him and he's going to rule. And I think Peter likes that part of the story and his disciples like that part of the story. They, they want the Christ to come and, and to come and, and kick the Romans out and rule and to bring this kingdom and bring justice and the reward to the faithful. But there's more to the story. He isn't a king who comes to conquer and comes to bring victory simply through military means. He's a king who's coming to bring his kingdom through failure, through suffering, through death, through humiliation, through the cross. And he wants them to understand that. But Peter's not ready for it. So when Jesus starts to talk about these things, he talks about being rejected by the leaders by suffering and being killed. Peter takes them aside. He's surprised. He's thinking, this has got to be all wrong. I mean, Daniel 7, doesn't it say dominion and power and all people's bowing? doesn't say anything there about a death and rejection and 
With tunnel vision and world-class audacity, Peter takes Jesus aside to rebuke him. No, Lord, this shouldn't be. Stop this nonsense, Jesus. This isn't right. There shouldn't be rejection and dying and failure. Just victory. But Peter wasn't realizing that there's more to the story. And the story is there in the Old Testament. It wasn't something new that Jesus was bringing. He wasn't introducing a new angle to the story here. It says in Isaiah 53 about the Christ, about the servant, this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as, from whom, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's more to the story. There's a death. There's an atoning death. There's a suffering for the sins of his people. There's rejection. There's being unesteemed. Counted accursed. This is part of the story. And so Peter thinks he's got it right and he's got it all wrong. Peter wants a prosperity gospel, not a gospel of the passion of Christ. And he thinks he's rebuking Jesus, but Jesus turns around, looks at his disciples and Peter, and he rebukes Peter, and he says to Peter, get Behind me, Satan. For you have in mind not the things of God, but the things of men. He rebukes Peter and Satan because Peter's thoughts are satanic and worldly, not godly. The idea that that the kingdom comes merely through a simple, easy victory, through simple, easy faith, through cheap grace, without suffering and death is satanic, demonic, and worldly. And not the mindset of God in the least. Peter was surprised by the cruciform life. He was surprised to recognize, to realize that there is suffering, that there is a cross. A cross for the Messiah, how could this be? But Jesus says this is part and parcel, essential to the plan. And I would say that this is not just essential to the plan. This is not just some plan C that God had to do. Oh man, I, I don't know what to do with the sin of men and I want to somehow bring the kingdom. So I guess I've got to do this suffering thing somehow on the side. That's not God's mindset. God is wise. He rules all all. He sees all. He knows all. He does whatever he is pleased to do. And before time began, the triune God decided this would be how he would do it. This would be how he puts his glory on display. This is how he would bring the kingdom. This is the sort of people he would create his people to be. A cruciform people and a cruciform gospel. That is how God puts his character and nature and very glory on display. And if you remove the cross from the gospel, if you remove the cross from the kingdom, if you remove a cruciform life from Christianity, you do not represent God. You represent something else, something satanic, something of the world. That's what Jesus is getting at here. And this is so important for us to hear. Because we all drift away into some sort of prosperity gospel. The good life, that's simply what it's about. And then we get terribly disappointed when things don't go our way. I would guess that for many of us, much of our unhappiness is simply that we don't get this truth. We're trying to make Christianity into something just pure good life. No suffering, no costs, 
no hardship, no trial, no death. And if we simply would face this and understand it and see where it leads us, it leads us to life, but it's not life on our terms, we'd be a lot happier. There's a lot of pliable in all of us. A while back, I remember overhearing a conversation. And there were some people talking about uh, Christianity and sex, the Bible and sex, and what it teaches about. And there was one side that they were basically saying, well, you know, God is gracious. And they were arguing for a fairly broad understanding, a grace, apparently seemingly love, loving approach to the sexuality that, that was permissive. They were arguing for that, and the other side were saying, wait a second, I, the Bible and God, God's teaching is very narrow. Let us not be mistaken here. It's narrow. It's holy. It's His way. doesn't mean it's easy, but it's His way. And they were pointing this out, and, and then someone on this side, I remember they, this side basically said, you know, this is what Jesus taught. And a woman said, my Jesus would never say that. And I thought, like you're probably thinking, I don't think your Jesus is the Jesus of the Bible. And we can all see that. And fairly obvious, perhaps, for you. But there's other areas of life where my Jesus, or your Jesus, is not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible calls us to deny ourselves. Take up our cross and follow him. The Jesus of the Bible is one who died, who suffered and died, and then rose again on the third day to victory. And we need to understand this aspect of the Christian life. That Jesus calls us to a cruciform life. We must die in order to live. Christ must die in order to bring life. Life is on the other side of death. You want life? You want true happiness? Then die with Jesus. Take up your cross. Follow Him. Learn to put self and sin in your own dreams to find apart from Him to death. Die and then live again. It's a cruciform life. We must die in order to truly live. And he calls, it's interesting in this passage, because he's not just teaching that he will die, but he goes right into an explanation of the Christian life. Do you see that? He explains that he will suffer and be rejected and be killed and rise again, and Peter rebukes him, he rebukes Peter. And then it says in verse 34, And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone, if anyone, would come after me. Anyone would come after me. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He's not only saying this is my path, but this is your path too. This is your path, Peter, and the twelve, and the crowd, and every Christian. Now for some people, that cross is a real cross, a literal cross. And for, for some of the disciples... There was reality that they were going to die for their faith. But for all of us, it's, it's a real cross spiritually. Because we're all called to deny ourselves. To take up our cross. To take up upon ourselves our means of death. To put to death self and sin in our own way, in our own preferences. To put them to death and say, my life belongs to you, Lord Jesus. I am dying with you. I identify with you in your death that I might live anew in your resurrected life. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who died and gave himself for me. That's the Christian life. That's the call here. That's such an important part to understand. Let no one sell you another form of Christianity. Let no one sell you a deathless form of Christianity. We are called to die to ourselves and sin. This is really what repentance is. 
Repentance and faith. We see Jesus. We understand who he is. We understand how good and precious he is. We believe him at his promises. We believe that he's God in the flesh. We believe that he forgives us. We believe that he leads us in kingdom life. We believe that we'll live, him with, we'll live with him forever. So we die to our preferences and our choices otherwise. We repent. We turn. Those two go together. And essentially repentance is death. And it isn't something that you just do once. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke adds the word daily after the command. Now, Jesus, I believe, said that. Mark doesn't record it. And it says in Luke, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself daily. Take up his cross and follow me. So it's not just something you do once. It's something you do every day. You get up, you wake up, you say, it's not about me. It's all about you, Jesus. I live in you. I live for you. I heard a story once about a pastor who was interacting with somebody who was basically complaining that they had asked for God to heal them for something. It was something real and a legitimate need. But I had asked for years and God hadn't healed them and they were complaining. And this pastor said in a, in a gruff way, perhaps an appropriate way, but he said, God doesn't want to heal you. He wants to kill you. God wants you to die, that you might live in him. And he might heal you. He's gracious. But stop focusing on what you can get and give your life to him. Die, that you might live. This is the call of the cruciform life. This is the call of the Christian life. Now, you might be thinking at this point, okay, okay, I kind of get it, but this is kind of morbid, isn't it? kind of hard. This is a hard teaching. I, I, was, I got up this morning, I wasn't feeling too good, and I thought I could come to church and be cheered up a little bit, and, and you had to talk about this stuff. Can you help me out a little here? Okay. What I want to do is talk about the reasons for the cruciform life from the passage. I want us to see that there are great and fantastic reasons for the cruciform life. Jesus just doesn't ask us to do this without reasons. This isn't the Marines. We don't promise you anything. Use a different word. This isn't the Marines. There's wonderful promises here. Promises that are well worth any sacrifice. And that's what he's getting at here in the last section. He's talking about the reasons for the cruciform life. Do you see that there? He says... Starting in verse 35, 4. So he says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And then for this, for that. So the word for is when we give an explanation. What's the reason for this? Well, here's the reason for this. And he gives in this section, I think three or four different reasons for the cruciform life. First, he says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Verse 35 says, For whoever, for whoever would save his life will lose it. This is a universal principle. It's for whoever, anybody who would lose, who would save their life will lose it. It's a universal principle, an inescapable reality. Established by the God who rules over the whole universe that if your life is about preserving your life, if your life is about pursuing your own pleasure and your own self-satisfaction and your own selfish goals, if you are active in making yourself the point of your pursuit, you will find you get the opposite of what you desire. You will find that you lose your life. Now we see this worked out around us practically, temporally, right? The people who have all the power and the riches and the wealth and material goods that they want, they're some of the most miserable people around. And who are the happiest people? The people that live simply and for others. They're some of the happiest people. So we see it worked out temporally and practically. But it's beyond just a temporal, practical experience it's eternal as well. And that's what Jesus is getting at. That in the end, if you pursue satisfying your own life, you will lose it, not just in being unhappy here and now, but forever, eternally unhappy. Because you will not 
have God. And He alone is the source of happiness in life. You will find yourself dead eternally. That's what hell is. It's eternal death. You are alive spiritually in a sense of being conscious, but you don't have God. And you find, will find out that the life that you thought you were pursuing led to death. So, why pursue a cruciform life? Well, because if you try to live otherwise, you're going to find death in the end. You'll find death now. You'll find death in the end. Why be so foolish? Jesus gives the other side of that. For whoever, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. If you lose your life, if you say, yes, I'm going to die to my selfish plans, my self-defining life, my self-defining way of what's right and wrong, my love of comfort, my love of wealth, my love of whatever it might be that's, that you make greater than God, that you are unwilling to die to. That if you say, I, I am willing to give these things up, and turn from these things and find my life in Christ, you will experience real life. And you will find that, that you receive a treasure that's better than anything else. This is the truth of the Word of God. This is the call of God in Scripture. There's a wonderful story in Matthew 13 about a man. It's a parable that Jesus tells. It's a story that Jesus tells. A metaphor of a man who's working in a field and he somehow uncovers a treasure that's buried in the field. For whatever reason, it was put there. He's just a worker. He happens to be working the field and he digs up and there's this treasure of, of really great worth that he finds suddenly. He covers it up. Quickly covers it up. And then he goes home and he sells everything. All those things that he loved. That beautiful antique car that was in his garage, the, the set of skis, the flat screen TV, the brand new custom built home itself, all of it, he sells gladly because he knows that treasure in the field is worth way more than all that by far. Jesus tells this parable because that's a picture of Jesus and his kingdom. And when we understand how worthwhile Jesus is, how worthwhile it is to be reconciled to God, to know God, to live with God, and then to live with him forever in his new creation, to live with him now, to have him, though we have nothing else, but to have him far surpasses anything else we could have. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. That's what he's saying to us here. It's you, the one who loses his life for my sake and the gospel, the good news, will keep it. Well, how do I know Jesus is worthwhile in this way? How do we know? Well, we know because we've been going through this gospel and watching him at work, and there's just something about him. He's not like anybody else. We're watching him demonstrate that he's Lord of all. He rules all things. We've watched him heal the sick and raise the dead and drive out demons. We've listened to him teach. We know from the story that he's God himself in the flesh. And that in and of itself is attractive enough to say, I'll make the exchange. I'll give up these things that I might have him. But the story of Mark goes on teaches us even more. Not only is he an amazing teacher, not only is he Lord, not only is he God in the flesh, but he's a God who at the end of Mark, God-man goes to the cross himself, chooses to suffer and die. Why? To die in our place on the cross. Because the story tells us that the wages of sin is death. The penalty for sin, the penalty for a life lived apart from God, the penalty for choices made for ourselves and not for God 
the just consequences of sin, of this lifestyle of rebellion and turning from God, is to live in that rebellion forever. To be cast away, to, to experience spiritual death. The wages of sin is death. Jesus knows this. God knows this. And yet in his amazing love for us, he wants us to have real life. He wants us to have forgiveness. He wants us to have reconciliation with God. So he himself, God in the flesh, of infinite value and glory, sacrifices that glory by dying on the cross for your sins and pays for those sins completely so there can be complete forgiveness and acceptance before God, righteousness in His presence. He does it on the cross and then He rises again on the third day, vindicated, accepted in His sacrifice. And He does that for you. He gives his all for you. And now he says, come and give yourself to me. Come and die to yourself on your own terms that you might live in me. That you might live in me and have this forgiveness that I purchased for you. That you might live in me and follow me and know me as your loving Savior, your shepherd, your King. Follow me now, and I will lead you through this life, and I will cause all things, even the suffering, even the hardship, to work for your good and to work for the good of others through you. And then I will lead you to be in my presence forever and join eternal bliss in my kingdom. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says it this way, and we can put this up. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. The love of Christ controls us. Why do this crazy thing? Why die? Why would we choose it? Why would we choose to face potential suffering? For the disciples, it, it might have been an actual crucifixion. Why? Why would you ever do such a foolish thing? Why would you trade away your life for Jesus? For the love of Christ compels us. We have seen His love for us on the cross. We've believed Him. And we've decided that that is worth more than all we could ever give. We are to give ourselves unconditionally to the one who gave himself fully for us. And as we die, we find there's a resurrection on the other side. There's life. The one who dies, who gives his life away, who loses his life for my sake, will keep it. We'll have life. We'll have resurrected life. That's reason number one. And I'll quickly go through the other three. He says next, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Or sometimes translated life. More literally, soul. Self. In other words, why live the other way? Why? Why would you trade away your soul? Why would you trade away your life? Why would you trade away your eternity for something that's just passing? The whole world is not worth your soul. All that the world offers you, all that the world advertises to you, all the popularity you think will be fulfilling, all the material goods, all the careers and the position, it's not worth it. None of it's worth it. Why would you trade those things for your soul? Why? You could never give enough for your soul. And Jesus says... I come to save your soul. I've made a way for you. I've paid for you. It's done. The work is finished. You simply need to turn and trust to die and to live, to repent and believe. It's that simple. And if you have not done that yet, you just simply need to do that. Say, Jesus, I, I'm sorry. 
I want to die and live in you. I, I turn from my sins. I turn to you. You can just pray that simple prayer. Express a heart of faith. And the Bible tells us clearly, you will be forgiven. And you will be welcome. And you will belong to him forever. Why? Why do anything else? It makes no sense. Third reason, he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There's an aspect of dying that we have to die to what others think of us. There's no way around that. We have to die to what others think of us. And if you are ashamed of Jesus and his words, that's not dying. The opinion of your friends matter more than the opinion of Jesus. You haven't died. And if you choose to prefer popularity of your friends over the approval of Jesus, you haven't died. And so you must come and you must die. You must die to what they think. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation that's passing, that's rebellious, what a foolish thing to care about what this, this adulterous and sinful generation thinks of us. Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory. Of his Father with the holy angels. We'll understand what opinion matters on that final day. Jesus will come in glory with mighty holy angels. And we'll un- understand at that point whose opinion really matters. And if we have chosen by grace to die, we will be so glad. And if we have instead chosen not to die, to care more about people's opinions, we will realize how foolish we've been. How did we not see whose opinion really matters? That's reason three. Finally, verse one of chapter nine, I believe fits in with this, and it does lead us into the next section we'll get to next week. Jesus says that there are some here Standing, who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. There are some in this group, these 12 people, men, and the crowd is probably there. There's some others there as well, who will not taste death. And then that will be fulfilled in the beginning of chapter 9 when Jesus is transfigured in front of the three, Peter, James, and John. And they will see Jesus in his glory. They will see him in his kingdom glory, his future glory, before they die. And that is a fourth reason when we see Jesus in his glory, when we realize who he is and what he has and what we have in him, it gives us motivation. We understand this is worth it. This is a glorious king. He rules. He's holy. He's mighty. He rules all things. He will finish what he started. It will happen as he said. His word says it. His resurrection guarantees it historically to us. So why not die? Why not gladly die? Why not get in line and say, I'm first, Lord. I want to die today because I can live for you in this. That's the call of Jesus. That's the call of Christianity. That's the gospel, the true gospel and the gospel call. As the band comes up and we finish... What do we do with this? Well, if you've never died, never turned from self and sin, do it today. Trust Him today. Today's the day to start eternal life. If you have questions, ask someone you've come with or talk to me afterwards. I would love to talk with you. For those of you who have already come to him, you've died, you've returned, and you've trusted, you are his, and your salvation isn't in question. You don't lose your salvation because you don't die enough. But the call is every day to deny yourself. And perhaps for you, you've been kind of straying off the path. You've been following a Jesus that's my Jesus versus this Jesus. You've been holding on to something and saying, you must give this to me, Lord. I must have this. Or maybe you don't even think of it that way. It's just, I'm unhappy. And if only I had this thing, I'd be happy. And that thing isn't Jesus. This passage calls you back 
to him. He loves to answer prayers. He's gracious. But he never wants those things to be more important than having him. And maybe you just need to take a moment to think about what that thing is and to say, Lord, I'm sorry I've made that thing more important than you. And right now I choose to die to that, that I might find my life in you. Maybe there's a, something he would want you to do that you haven't done. Maybe finances or career decisions. Relational decisions. He's saying, die, that you might live. Third group is just, maybe you've been drawn in by what's called the prosperity gospel. Maybe you listen to some of these teachers that are out there, and I, I can list, I won't list from the pulpit, but I can list some of those on the side for you. And I would warn you to stay away from some prosperity teachers who are teaching you simply your best life now just through faith belief. There's good and there's truth in that, but it's compromised. It doesn't have the call to die. I watch some of these guys and I think, man, if, if only we could get about 10 minutes to get somebody up there and give them the gospel that calls them to die that they might live again. And maybe you've been drawn away to that. And the call for you is to come back to this Jesus and to die and to find the life, the true life that's on the other side of that. I'm going to pray and then let's just take a minute or so. Just consider quietly, maybe close your eyes, talk to the Lord. Are you one of those three? Or whatever the Lord would do to, to call you to respond to this word, to die that you might live this cruciform life where we must die in order to have true life. Lord, we thank you that you did not withhold essential parts of the story from us. You did not give us a bait and switch. You're saying up front, this is who I am, this is life in me. And we ask you now for grace and power to die that we might live again. Thank you for the life that you give. On the other side of death, there's no life like it. There's nothing sweeter than to walk with you and to find strength in our trials and hope for our future. Help us to die afresh and live afresh even today, we pray. Amen.